Catholicisms. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And the title of the sermon this morning is, Who Do You Think You Are? And I, I recently, I want to tell you about this, this story I read about the hardcore college professor who had had enough over the years. So, on the first day of his freshman class of 300 students, he told the packed auditorium that not one student was going to waste his time this year. If they were one minute late to class, they would be marked absent. And if they turned in an assignment or a test one minute late, they would get a zero. So then he spent the semester living up to his word, marking the late students absent and throwing away any late assignment that he received. Now on the day of the final exam, all of the students arrived on time for the test except for one. About 20 minutes into the test, this last student casually walked into the class and he went to the front of the room and picked up a test and he took it to the desk and proceeded to fill in his answers. The professor watched first with annoyance and then with an air of smug satisfaction at the life lesson that he knew he was about to teach this student. Just wait until he tries to turn it in and finds that I won't grade it, he thought. Finally, the test period wound down and students started to hand in their tests, all of the students, that is, except, you guessed it, that one student. He sat and continued to complete his test for 10 minutes past the end time of the exam. Finally, he got up to hand in his paper, but by this time, the professor, as you can imagine, was absolutely fuming. He was so angry at this kid. He said, how dare you? Coming in late and turning in your exam late, who do you think you are? And the student said, you don't know who I am? No, the professor scoffed. I certainly do not. Oh, thank goodness, the student said, and he shoved his test into the middle of the stack of exams and ran out of the room as fast as he could. <laughs> yeah, funny if you think from the student's perspective, but not if you resonate more with that professor, right? Well, I think it's, it, it kind of is a typical uh, story that illustrates that the question, who do you think you are, is often negative, if not always Negative. It's often an angry question, isn't it? Like you never want to hear someone say to you, who do you think you are normally? But here's the problem. The problem is it's a really good question. It's a really great question. Who do you think you are is a great self-orienting or reorienting question. It's a question that actually hangs over most of the New Testament. Did you know that? Who do you think you are is a powerful question that echoes off of almost every page of the New Testament, but not in an angry way, not at all, but in an incredibly invitational way. Who do you think you are? Let's read our text and dig the answer to that question out. And remember the context of where we're at in 1 Corinthians so far. Paul has been contrasting worldly wisdom and the wisdom of God, and we found last week, that the cross of Christ ensures that our faith rests not on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God's. But then he begins here, yet among the mature, in chapter 2, and this is God's word, we do impart wisdom. 
Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Now we're going to continue uh, through, but let's stop here and pray and jump into this. And Father, we pray that, that mostly through your word, that you would help us to see who do you think we are. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. So maybe you've noticed so far that the main tool that, that Paul has used in this letter so far has been the tool of contrast. Uh, certainly he has spent the majority of the time so far contrasting uh, worldly wisdom and the wisdom of God. Uh, he's going to move on to three more contrasts that I see. He's no longer necessarily dealing with the contrast between the wisdom itself uh, and it's interesting because the way that, that Paul starts here, it's almost like he, he admits that he's been going pretty hard on wisdom, uh, generically speaking, wisdom, worldly wisdom. He's been, he's been knocking wisdom pretty good so far, uh, but now he makes the point that not all wisdom is bad. Uh, make no mistake about it. As long as it's the right wisdom, look again at verse 6, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. He says, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Uh, so he does say that, that God's wisdom is true wisdom, but then we see this first contrast between the mature. The key word there is we preach God's wisdom among the mature. And, and the contrast here is the contrast really between the mature and the unregenerated. That's our first contrast. By referencing the mature who have received the wisdom of God, it's important to see right off the bat that Paul is not making a contrast here between Christians. This is going to be really crucial as we go forward. He is not now referring to mature Christians versus immature Christians. In the same way that he will not distinguish between spiritual Christians and unspiritual Christians or spiritual Christians and carnal Christians to come. Paul's contrast is between Christians and non-Christians throughout this entire section. And this is going to play out in how he describes the mature in the following verses. But just think about it. Why would Paul go through all of the trouble in the first four chapters of this letter to destroy arbitrary divisions among believers that are created by arbitrary categories and then create arbitrary categories that would tempt toward arbitrary decisions. Why would Paul do that? He's not going to do that. He wouldn't do that. And that's not what's going on here. The word mature is actually a word that includes the idea of something reaching its goal, like a mature wine or a mature tree or a person who knows the wisdom of God. 
So the wisdom of God is imparted to the mature, right? And not to the unregenerate. I wonder if you also noticed that Paul said that this is, is not a wisdom of this age, which gives us our second contrast. So it's a, it's a wisdom in part it's immature, but it's also a wisdom not of this age, which then creates this contrast between the present age, this age, and then the age to come. Just like there are only two kinds of people in the world, according to Paul, according to 1 Corinthians 1, the perishing or those who are being saved, there are theologically only two primary ages or eras in the New Testament. The present age, and the present age is the age now, which is characterized by sin and fallenness and brokenness that still rules in every part of creation. We live in the present age. But then there is the age to come, right? And the age to come is that that age that brings to end every rule or force that has opposed God. And it's simultaneously the entrance of perfection and all things new and an eternal kingdom that will last forever in glory and perfect holiness and righteousness in the presence of God forever. The thing is, the New Testament teaches us that the age to come has actually broken into this present age through Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ came, he inaugurated the age to come, meaning the age to come has already begun in Jesus Christ and through his life and death and resurrection. And one day will come in full. So what Paul is saying here, if you follow his argument, is that the wisdom of God is not, it's not a wisdom of this age, of this present age, the age ruled by human wisdom. Look, the age ruled by human wisdom will never get or see the wisdom of God. Otherwise, for example, the rulers of this present age would never have crucified Jesus, the Lord of glory. Think about it. It was the world's most powerful government at the time. The Roman Empire, the authority designated from the emperor himself all the way to ruling officials in the territories, including Pilate and Herod. And then that combines with the, the leading religion of the world. The Jews in Jerusalem, whose, whose high priest and ruling elders and the, the Sanhedrins, they, they both combined the height of religion and the height of governmental power, combined, conspired to kill and get rid of Jesus Christ, which is like trying to kill a dandelion by blowing on it. By killing him, they just spread him throughout the whole world. But the question is, why did they do that? Well, because they had no idea. According to worldly wisdom, this was the way to eradicate this. In other words, the reason they did that was because no eye has seen, 
And no ear has heard or mind ever conceived what, what God was thinking all along. What God was preparing for those of us who love him. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross was God's wisdom, right? But the rulers of this age, they couldn't see it. Why? Well, because the wisdom of this age or the, this present age is passing away. That's what he's saying. This is the argument that he's making. The wisdom of God isn't, isn't the wisdom of this age. It never will be. Specifically because this present age is passing away. These rulers were doomed to perish, he said. So just think about it. You put all of the world's collective wisdom since the fall. All the way back to the, the beginning when sin entered the world. Think about all of human history and all of the decades and all the millennia and all of the empires and all of the, the wisdom that humanity has to offer. You take all of that, all of the ways to do and find life in this world, even today, all that the world is trying to sell you in its wisdom for how to think and how to live and how to Find the good life. Look, you put all of human wisdom on the proverbial Titanic. Because God says it's all going to sink one day into a twisted oblivion, a faint and sad memory when the age to come fully comes and proceeds into eternal paradise. So why would God attach his wisdom to that? This is what Paul's saying. Where, where do you think Paul, God then did attach his wisdom? Well, he's already told us. God takes all of his wisdom and attaches it to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. Just like Alex said last week, a cross stands there at the turn of time. Jesus broke into this present age and the power and promise of God's eternal salvation and everlasting kingdom came. But it came in a God-man who died on a cross. He died on a cross for our forgiveness and rose again for our eternal salvation. Look, God's wisdom is not connected to human wisdom, but is all connected to a person. Do you see that? It's the person of Jesus Christ, who is everlasting, who came to inaugurate the age to come. God's wisdom, which will last forever. Look, Jesus died for us to save us from all that is perishing, to rescue us from that which is rotting and sinking. And I want to pause right here to say that if you are not a Christian, this is the message of the whole Bible, really. Who are you going to tie your life and your eternity to? A ship and a worldview based on a wisdom that is sinking and rotting and perishing? It's your choice. Or 
to Jesus Christ, who is eternal and offers eternal life to you. Look, Jesus died for your sins. Those might be words that you've heard a thousand times in your life. But do you know through faith in that, through faith in Christ, you can be saved from this present evil age. And you can be brought to Christ. He is the doorway into salvation, both now and forever. Choose Christ. You already know that the world is sinking. It never delivers. It It has never delivered for you. Look, the world is getting worse, and you know it. The center is not holding. But listen, there's a better story. There's a better story about a savior who loves you and came and died for you to save you and to bring you to himself. Won't you bow your knee to Christ? Tie your life through faith to Jesus Christ. So let's move on. If if the gospel, again, Paul's Paul's arguing here, and so we, we really need to follow his train of thought, his Argument. So I, I think it's going this way. If the gospel is God's wisdom and that wisdom is imparted to the mature and it's a wisdom that is not of this age, then the next logical question is, well, then how can we know this wisdom? How can we know about this, this mystery that was once concealed that's now been revealed in Christ? In other words, how can the unspiritual understand the spirit or the spiritual? And the answer is because God's spirit has revealed all of this to us. And it's here that Paul creates this third contrast between the natural man and the spiritual man. The natural and the spiritual. Look again at verse 10. This is our next section. And and he says it right off the bat. These things, the wisdom of God, not of this present age, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And if we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God. Look at this description and let this sink in for all of us. Because this is getting at who do you think they are if there's a we and they, those who are perishing and those who are being saved. The natural person, number one, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Because number two, they are folly to him. And number three, he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is why we're called to compassion Because you can't ask something that's dead to do live things. 
You can't ask someone who's dead to understand spiritual things. That's what he's saying here. The, the contrast isn't between spiritual Christians and unspiritual Christians. It's between those who have received the Spirit and those who haven't, the, the natural, still dead in their sin. Now, I don't want to belabor uh, this point, but because it's really straightforward. If you just follow what Paul is saying, he's saying to become, number one, a Christian is to receive the very Spirit of God. Every believer receives the Spirit of God. Born of the Spirit, given the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, describes every true Christian saved. That's what he's saying. And the Spirit of God, number two, whom we have received, knows everything about God, which makes sense because who knows a person the absolute best except the person himself or herself. The spirit of that person in the same way who knows God best except the spirit of God. And then number three, the only way that we know anything from God is because the spirit of God who knows God has been given to us and reveals God to us. But number four, the natural man or the man or woman still of the flesh, the unregenerated, the person not of the spirit, cannot possibly know anything about God because God is only spiritually discerned. Do you get that? That's, all, that's, that's what's going on there. So again, if we follow what Paul is saying here in this text, using these three contrasts, he says we do preach wisdom. It's a real wisdom, but it's, it's a wisdom to the mature, imparted to the mature. But it's not a wisdom of the world that is perishing, but a wisdom from God. And that wisdom is only understood by those who have been given the Spirit because only the Spirit knows and reveals all of who God is. And the unspiritual or the natural man or woman can't. And by the way, don't forget that that's who we all once were. Remember who you were when you were called, Paul just told us. Not many wise, not many influential, not many of noble birth, right? We were all nothings and nobodies who, who weren't even looking for God. I remember the early 90s, we would go to the mall, and they had these things, and they were, there were these pictures, I don't know what the art store was, or the picture store, or whatever it was, but it was this thing where it was a print, it wasn't a painting, but it was a print, and you're supposed to look at it, and you're like supposed to cross your eyes, kind of, I mean, it was like, a, it was like squiggly lines, you guys remember this? You would like cross your line, your, your eyes, and all of a sudden, someone would freak out, because they like saw dolphins, you know, like in 3D, raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Okay, if you don't know, okay, a lot of you do. So I was terrible at that, right? I mean, I just was like, they're like, no, look past the picture. I'm like, what does that mean? Like, you know, it's like, it, it's like, yeah, to the natural man, you can't see the dolphins, but the spiritual could see the dolphin. Or, you know, it's just like, I think one time I eventually did, and it did blow my mind, and it was really cool. But, it, but Paul is saying, look, it's, you, it's not like some people can see the dolphins and some people can't. You weren't, even, you, you weren't even looking at a painting before Christ. You weren't even in the mall. You were, you were dead in your sins and following your own sins and desires and rebellion to God. You had no idea, maybe faintly, that there was something called a picture somewhere. 
until God by his spirit made your heart alive to see the glory and beauty and power of Jesus Christ. Look, this is what happens to every believer. And what hasn't happened yet to everyone who's not, who is still dead in their sins. Look, it's, it's amazing grace that saved wretches like us, isn't it? This is what God has done for us. And then to make it even better, Paul describes the mature. He describes those who have received the Spirit. Look in verse 15 and 16. He says, the spiritual person judges all things. And again, remember, this spiritual person isn't a spiritual Christian versus an unspiritual Christian. This is every believer. Judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. How can we who've been already judged by the cross of Jesus Christ be judged by anyone? He says, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? And he says this, but we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Look, who do you think you are? Would one of your answers be someone who has the mind of Christ? And, and I get it that, that that idea, the mind of Christ, it sounds kind of mystical, doesn't it? I've always read that. I was like, what does that actually mean, you know, that we have the mind of Christ? It sounds, it sounds kind of mystical. Is it like some kind of mind meld, you know, that, that kind of like Spock does that, you know, whatever he does. And, or you, you like roll your eyes back in your head and somehow you like conjure or connect to the mind of Christ. Well, of course, it's not that at all. Nor, by the way, is it a, a category that creates superiority for some Christians over others, as if some have the mind of Christ and others don't. No, the, the mind of Christ, maybe I can illustrate it. Just think about your dad, if you have a dad, or think about your, your mom. And it might sound clunky to say it this way to our ears, but if I asked you, what is the mind of your dad? Or what is the mind of your mom? I actually think you would know. That's actually not a very mystical question at all. Because it's just simply asking, what is your mom or dad like? Like based on what you know, what do they like? What do they think? What, what does your dad think about certain things? What does your mom think about certain things? What do they think about the world? What do they think about your family? What do they think about politics? What do, you, what do they think about church? What do they think about worship? What do they think about our community? What have they insisted on regarding your upbringing and your behavior? What do they care about? I know every family is different, but what does your mom, what does your dad really care about? What do they hope for for your family? What makes them mad? What makes them most happy? Do you see, you know these things. You know, therefore, the mind of your dad or your mom. And they've only revealed all of this to you through their words and actions. But think about this. We have the mind of Christ because he has revealed it to us by his spirit who knows the deepest things of God who fills us. Who reveals Christ to us. So, what is Jesus like? 
What is the mind of Christ? What is the mindset of Jesus Christ? What does Jesus like? Do you know? I think you do. What does Jesus think about certain things? What does Jesus think about the world? What does Jesus think about your family? What does Jesus think about politics, about the church, about worship, about our community? What has Jesus insisted on regarding your upbringing and your behavior? What does Jesus really care about? What does Jesus hope for your family? What makes Jesus mad? What makes Jesus most happy? Look, you know. If you've known Christ for any length of time, and we know because he's revealed it to us in his word. This is why there's four gospels in our Bible. That's why we spent eight months on the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount reveals to us the mindset of Christ. The very mind of Christ. And, and we have the mind of Christ. Not just from his words and his actions, but by the Spirit of God who reveals Christ to us. This is incredible, isn't it? But in the immediate context, and, and if you put all of this together, hang with me. Think about this. The last few weeks. If you put all of this together so far, what do you think was at the center of the mission, ministry, and mind of Jesus Christ? What do you think it is? I'm asking. The cross. The cross. This is, this is what Paul has been Telling us the cross is the very wisdom of God and the power of God. The mystery once concealed but now revealed by the Spirit is the cross. Where sin and death and hell and the entire curse would be defeated. He set his eyes like flint to the cross. And, and, and even when he preferred a different way, he said, not my will be done but yours. So if you put this together, then what do you and I think having the mind of Christ really means or looks like? It has to include, number one, humility and the cross, doesn't it? Look, brothers and sisters, who do you think you are? Well, I'll tell you, you have the mind of Christ. If you've been given the spirit of God, you have the mind of Christ, which certainly must include then, therefore, humility. Humility as the goal of life, not power, not privilege, not higher and higher up, not superiority looking down on others. Certainly not divisions based on superiority and looking down on others. Look, if the Son of God incarnate lived in order to die on a cross, who do you think you are? Well, we have the mind of Christ. Therefore, should not humility just emanate from our lives? Look at this from Philippians Two. Isn't this what Paul, he's saying it the same way in kind of a different place. He says, do nothing. This is the upside down kingdom of God. 
because of Christ and the power of his spirit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind, see it? Among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we have the mind of Christ. So are, are we humble? Do we find life and joy in the lowest places, considering others more important than ourselves? I wonder if you can see Jesus this morning and hear him asking you that. What is the mind of Christ also, except number two, self-denial and self-sacrifice in the cross. We're just connecting these to the cross. If Jesus' life was lived toward the cross and he calls us to a cruciform life, then how could it not be a life of self-denial and self-sacrifice? Look, Jesus lived to give, to give his life for others. This is why he came. Jesus knew that the way to true life and true glory was self-denial and self-sacrifice. And he calls us to the same. Look, if the pinnacle of the life of the Son of God was a supreme act of self-denial, not my will, but yours be done, and self-sacrifice, he died for us, then who do we think we are? Well, I'll tell you, we have the mind of Christ. We can think like he does about our lives and where true joy and life is found, which is so completely alternate from the way that the world is selling things to us. Self-denial and self-sacrifice? No, self-actualization, self-identification. The world's project is, is selling us the idea that it would be immoral for you to not define yourself by yourself and then stay true to yourself. To find life and joy inside. Self-expression. Political identity. Sexual identity. Gender identity. Racial identity. You pick. Look, that's a lie. It's a lie. And it's rotting and it's sinking and the center's not holding and we can see it all around us. Jesus came to inaugurate a better story that your life is found not inside but looking outside and giving yourself to others. And you know this. Why is the greatest generation called the greatest generation? Because a generation of young people, like those boys on the back wall, 20-year-olds, left our country to give their lives for something, to fight for something outside of themselves, for something greater than themselves, and they're now known as the greatest generation. 
Does our generation have a shot at being called the greatest generation? <laughs> the greater greatest generation? No. Why? I'm ashamed to, to be a part of it in some level because we're terrible. All we think about is ourselves. Self-fulfillment, self-gratification, self-identity, and the world is rotting and dying with that wisdom. But who do you think you are? We have the mind of Christ, brothers and sisters. Are you willing to die and find life? Look, glory, unimaginable glory exists going through death and through a cross that we're called to pick up every day. Every day, self-denial, self-sacrifice. It's the way of Christ. How about number three, unity in the cross? Now, we know that, that unity was Jesus' mindset connected to the cross because this is what he prayed for. You always know what people care about when they pray. Have you ever noticed that? It's just like general prayer. Hey, let's just pray. Whatever, your community group, whatever comes to your mind, let's just pray together. You know what's deep on people's hearts when you hear them pray to God. And we got to hear Jesus pray right before his crucifixion. And he prays, Father, make them one. Father, make them one, just as we are one. Look, his, he knew that his cross was going to break down all the dividing walls that he had seen in play for 30 years with his own life. All the dividing walls racism and sexism and classism and ageism and political partyism and all of the isms that had torn apart his image bearers ever since the fall he knew that his his cross was going to bring down dividing barriers where there would be no longer man or woman or, or Gentile or Jew or slave or free or rich or poor. It would be all one in Christ. So if the Son of God prays to his heavenly Father, make them one, then, then who do we think we are? Well, I'll tell you, we have the mind of Christ. We care about what Jesus cares about. We think by the Spirit who reveals Christ who knows what matters to Christ. Which, which means that division should, should be as repulsive to us as, as Ipecac. I've heard of this. It's that automatic throw-up juice. The minute it hits your stomach, Wah! like it's a thing for like poisoning situations, right? You need somebody to throw up quick. In my day, you just like jabbed your finger down your throat as far as you could this went sideways. Why are we talking about that? Oh, because division should be that repulsive to us. It should be that repulsive. The minute it hits our system, blah! I hate that. Why? Because Jesus Christ came to die and shed his blood to unite us through his death and resurrection. 
Do we fight for unity among brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we subordinate preferences? For those who are mature spiritual, been given the spirit of God, God revealing himself to them, maybe at a different pace than us, it's fine. But I wonder if you and I fight for the kind of unity that Jesus prayed for. I wonder if we could see Jesus this morning and hear him ask us that. And then finally, the mindset, and there's so many. I think you can go on and on. But, but you have to include the glory of God in the cross, right? In the context, if the mind of Christ connects to that which was central to Jesus in his mission, which was the cross, which is the very wisdom of God, not of this world, revealed to us by the Spirit of God, then we have to finally see the glory of God in the cross. The mindset of Christ above all other mindsets, or that which controlled his mindset at every part, was the glory of God. He lived every day and every breath of his life for the glory of his Father. That's all he wanted to do, was please his Father. So if the second person of the Godhead lived his life to to glorify the Father with all that he was and all that he did and in every area of his life, then who do we think we are? Again, I'll tell you, we have the mind of Christ. So do we live for his glory above all things, above ourselves, above our pleasures, above our idols? I hope you can see. Who do you think you are? It's not an angry question, right? It's a wonderful reorienting question. It's a question that invites a major adjustment to the core of our very identity and what it means to live that out. Look, why doesn't Paul just say, stop the divisions? Paul and Apollos and Peter, they're, they're not better than each other. The three of you that got baptized today by Alex, that's really special. But in the scheme of things, it doesn't matter who baptizes you, it matters who saved you, right? Why doesn't Paul just say, stop it? Well, because there's a deeper issue that he sees in their hearts. Jesus has been dislodged from the center. And they've forgotten who they are. They've forgotten who they are. Look at this list. There are 17, at least, 17 identity markers just so far in 1 Corinthians. He says that you are the church of God. You are those who are sanctified in Jesus Christ. You are called to be saints. Grace was given to us in Christ Jesus. You are enriched in him in all speech. You are enriched in him in all knowledge. You are not lacking in any spiritual gift. You are being sustained by him till the end. You are being sustained guiltless. You are called into the fellowship of his son. You are those who are called by God. You are those who are chosen by God. Because of him, we are in Christ Jesus. And that's just chapter one. And then today, we are the mature. We have all received the spirit who is from God. We are the spiritual person. We have the mind of Christ. Brothers and sisters, who do you think you are? This is who you are. And this is who I am. The only question becomes, is this what we're going to live out of each day?
Worship team, you can come and we'll, we'll end. And I'll just, just ask you this question and I encourage you to think about it. But how will you, because of, of who, who you think you are today, how will that transform how you live this week? How does who do you think you are gonna affect Monday this week? And Tuesday through Saturday, at home, at school, at work, your friendships, in the conflicts that you're in the middle of right now, in the things that are stuck right now, in the sin that so easily entangles us, so difficult to say no to, maybe we're trapped in, maybe inside of addictions right now. Who do you think you are? There's a power there to change everything. Do you know that? To change everything. So let's remember who we are, brothers and sisters, and live accordingly. Amen? Lord Jesus, we pray that you will help us. Seems like a lot of the Christian life is easier said than done. And Lord, we're grateful that your word confirms that, that the Spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. So we need your power, Holy Spirit. Will you come, Holy Spirit, and fill us with power right now? The Spirit of God freely given to us, would you come? Empower our lives. Ignite the mind of Christ in us to live for your glory. Amen.